Hello and welcome to the CAV Podcast. I'm Alan Jones and I'm hosting this podcast today on behalf of the Central Association of Agricultural Valuers, a specialist professional body representing valuers and rural professionals throughout England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Launched back in January of this year, our podcast is not only aimed at CAV members, it's open to anyone who has an interest in rural land, property and business and an interest in the issues that affect farming and the countryside. So let's turn our attention to today's topic, the 2020 budget, or what has been more recently described as the coronavirus budget. No doubt we'll touch upon that later. But this is the first budget of Boris Johnson's majority government, with the newly appointed Chancellor Rishi Sunak delivering the statement. He spoke at the House of Commons for over an hour and his speech was packed with announcements and spending commitments. But what does it all mean? Well, someone who's been frantically reading the statements in record speed in order to turn this podcast around super quick is the secretary and advisor to the CAV, Jeremy Moody, and there are bundles of papers all around us as we record this. Uh, but Jeremy, can I start by asking, uh, what are the key headlines from this year's budget? I think the key headlines that come out of this are, firstly, this is a government feeling the mandate of a new election victory of a majority, the first government with a majority for some years, conscious that this is the first budget for the UK outside the European Union since 1972, looking to put in place a programme for productivity, for national levelling up, as the phrase has it, but looking to improve the economy and infrastructure across the whole country, but then very much having to take on board the scale of what it's clearly expecting to be the impact of the coronavirus outbreak that it's had to take account of just very quickly in the last few weeks. And certainly that's the big topic of the day, the, the coronavirus outbreak. And he uh, he talked about a package of measures um, coming to about £30 billion of policy measures. Uh, what do they cover in total? I think that's a very significant figure that he's talking about. It's spread across public services like the NHS. It's spread across support for individuals and it's spread across support for businesses in this. And most of what I think I want to touch on a support for businesses. But it's worth saying this is stated to be the government's first response. It's there with more in reserve. Secondly, the effect of the coronavirus as it comes through, whether from disruption to world supply chains, domestic supply chains, people being ill and off work, businesses being themselves badly disrupted, is all expected to be relatively temporary. This is a matter of months. So a number of the significant changes are purely temporary, very much aimed at ensuring business continuity, to keep the wheels of the economy turning, that businesses have confidence in each other, that the banks have confidence in the businesses. And we had this morning's announcement from the Bank of England, not only of a half point cut in interest rates, but also of measures to see that banks passed that straight through to the businesses on which the, the, that rely on those banks. Uh, so very much that thrust, but it's a first. It's a first package, but the scale of it indicates, I think, the government being ready for quite significant economic shocks, and trying to smooth this, and then looking to see where they go after that, and that's where other parts of the budget then come through. As to the package, 
It's quite interesting. Obviously, there's been a lot of discussion around statutory sick pay. The Prime Minister has already announced that it will be available from day one, and regulations for that, I think, are, are still to come through. Uh, employers are, are suggested that they use their discretion over requiring fit notes and all of this. The sick pay arrangements being extended to those on very low wages or uh, the self-employed who are otherwise outside the system. Businesses to be able to recover the first fortnight's worth of statutory sick pay. The government trying to find a mechanism to, by which they can, that can be done. So that's all been the discussion. That's helped for individuals and it's helped for business coping with that. More generally... The government has clearly seized on the rate system, the business rate system, and so this is now very much more largely for England. The other measures will be more UK-wide. The business rate system as a means for trying to assist small businesses. They want to use the small business rate relief system to pass £3,000 back to every small business in the country that qualifies for that relief as an assistance to its costs in all of this. They're increasing the employer's allowance. They are increasing rate relief for small shops and pubs and restaurants. Again, trying to keep all these businesses that might find trade precarious if the virus outbreak goes as people think it might, uh, keeping cash in the economy. And that that's fundamentally important because if that begins to break down, then our problems get very much worse. Because the impact of the coronavirus will be felt all across the economy and no doubt it'll have an impact on some of our members' yeah. businesses themselves. It's a remarkably complicated outbreak in that we saw with the financial crash we saw a demand side problem we have seen issues and it overlaps with foot and mouth in some ways and the issues we had to wrestle there with the rural economy some firms are already having problems finding parts for manufacturing because they're on global supply chains if a business is in an area that's restricted or where staff are, are, are ill then it has a problem in trading and, do, and, and doing its business it may have problem making its tax payments. All this is the sort of thing that's having to be talked through and understood. And if people aren't earning money, then they aren't able to buy things. And that is a further effect on the economy. And that will be as true in the rural economy as in any other part of the UK. But given that the package of measures come to about £30 billion in total, what's gone from the budget? How has the Chancellor managed to balance the figures? Or is this such an unprecedented uh, occurrence that it's a one-off? Oh, I think this is very much a one-off. This is something that he's done for a few months. This is where the government really is putting all hands to the pump and trying to do, trying to do something and get it moving. There is a larger mystery in the, in the budget, which is the one you're pointing to, which is that there are significant areas of generosity on, on, on a first understanding and understanding which areas are paying for it is a little harder at this short notice. He's made mention of the prospect that the UK is no longer will no longer be making continuing payments as we, as we go through the next few years to the European Union. He has held corporation tax at 19%, and that brings several billion into the account. Uh, I've noticed that the annual investment allowance for businesses is being allowed to lapse back from a million a year to 200,000 a year. There may not be many millions in that, but it's an interesting little saving being made there. But at this stage, I think they're just so anxious to put money into the economy.
And the, the second biggest headline coming from the budget is the huge uh, spending commitments around infrastructure. And had it not been for the coronavirus outbreak, I guess that would have been the, the government's preferred main headline uh, for this budget. But quite substantial commitments of infrastructure investments to be made by this government over the next five years. Very substantial. They're talking about a programme of $640 billion over the years to 2025. Uh, this is everything from potholes to major roads. It's power supplies and networks, it's railways, it, 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 it is a very, very substantial programme allied to support for affordable house building and, and, and other things, all enabled by the ultra-low interest rates that we have. I think it's very important to distinguish between, if you like, the current account of revenue spending, though we've just described how that's been affected by responding to coronavirus, but on the if you like, the capital account, the investment account, the things that are supposed to raise the long-run rate of growth in the economy by enabling the economy, broadband and things like this, then they are looking at the opportunity of today's very low interest rates and saying, we can borrow long-term to do that. That will yield us more return than it costs us, so it's a sensible investment for us to do. And the markets appear very willing to support that, and you're watching, we've been watching since the, the, the financial crash, the process of the government beginning to build an investments programme, but these things can take quite a long time to come through. Well, that's precisely my, my, my next question, because they've made this commitment, wanting to spend all this money by 2025. And we know, as valuers, how lengthy these large infrastructure schemes can be. Mm. They take several years in their gestation period. So uh, how ambitious and how realistic is that timescale? I think we've still quite to try to understand this. Um, it's easy to make big promises, but we've seen with a number of schemes, the Chancellor himself referred to the A303 past Stonehenge as having been in the government's mind since the 1980s. And I'm sure many people can think of road schemes that have been outstanding much longer than that. The process from design, going through the planning exercise, getting consent, letting contracts, getting it built, this all, this all takes years. We have been building the scale of the pipeline for in infrastructure projects. There probably is quite a lot that can come through, but it does look a very demanding target. Which will undoubtedly lead to more CPO work for our members. Inevitably, the countryside, being between cities, is where roads, pipelines, cables, railways all pass through. And these schemes all proceed by f taking people's land through compulsory purchase, which itself is a difficult process and time-consuming quite properly because it protects people's property rights to some extent and ensures that they should get paid, though in many schemes there are difficulties around that, as we're seeing with HS2. And that is an important area of work to protect people's interests in their own properties to see that they are fairly dealt with Unlike urban compulsory purchase, where you very often are taking somebody's house entirely, here with a farm, you're taking a strip across somebody's land. You're leaving it in parts. You're affecting and devaluing the rest of it. You're disrupting the keeping of livestock. You are breaking up the land drainage systems. And all of this is something that has to be thought about by people who are going to continue farming on each side of that road or railway, continuing a business, and that makes it a much more complex problem, equally one to be dealt with fairly and properly. 
And uh, in passing, uh, we've actually recorded another podcast episode on the CPO, picking up some of the highlights from uh, one of the CV's publications, Best Practice in Statutory Compensation Claims, which will be released in the coming weeks, which uh, uh, is even more important now, g- given what we've seen in the budget. But on, on that infrastructure point, Jeremy, is the, is the majority of this investment going to be focused on England, given the devolved nature? No, there is an arrangement for the funding of the devolved authorities, devolved governments, so that where money is increased in England, so under the Barnett formula, equivalent sums of money uh, proportionately are made available to the devolved, and clearly in each of them there are major infrastructure schemes in mind. So uh, what we have is the English programme, because that's announced, but it is then for Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland to announce their own programmes. And what's very welcoming uh, to see and reassuring for many people who've been affected by the recent uh, adverse weather and flooding indeed is the fact there's commitment here to build new flood defences. Yes, the announcement is for a doubling of flood defence expenditure from 2.6 billion to 5.2 billion over the years 21 to 27. uh, And that is seen to protect something like a third of a million properties. Uh, That is obviously very welcome. Again, it's setting that work in hand. There are people in the recent floods who've said, well, we were about to be defended after problems some years ago, and they hadn't quite built it in time. So we will want to be watching that. There's money also made available, given the scale of flooding in some areas that we've had this winter, to repair flood defences that have been damaged by the very high levels of water that some parts of the country have seen. And, and, And this again is welcome. In places it will involve compulsory purchase again. And there's also talk about improving connectivity, uh, particularly in rural areas, and there's a specific mention of broadband here as well. Yes, they're aiming to try and improve rural connectivity for broadband. Uh, Five billion has been put on one side to assist this. There was an announcement the other day by the government around arrangements with the operators for joint funding for, uh, again, rolling out further connectivity. Uh, We're expecting to see more of this. Again, this is something that's been promised for a long time. And it's all on that continuing theme of the government's desire to try and boost the economy. Yes. This is about building long-term capacity in an economy where we sense that we've under-invested for quite some years and therefore it does take a period of time for catching up. Whether it's tackling all the potholes the Chancellor mentioned or the road schemes that enable the ports to work well, that builds trade, that builds the economy. And what about housing and planning? That was mentioned in the the Chancellor's speech as well. Money is being put on one side to support more affordable housing, more social housing in in, in those areas. And we are led to expect an announcement for for England on a radical, a fundamental rethink of planning policy. And clearly we wait to see what the Secretary of State will say. And turning our attention to the taxation measures, uh, first off, capital gains tax. Now, there's been a lot of talk pre-budget about uh, entrepreneurs' relief. What has happened? This was heralded in the Conservative Manifesto. Entrepreneurs' relief, which costs two and a half to three billion a year, has been seen by its critics as not encouraging, not acting as an incentive for people really to build the businesses that the country wants, that they then sell and they move on and and, and set up another business and and go through this. So it's been criticised very heavily on that score. It's quite a complex set of reliefs, so the government has done what is probably the simplest thing it could do and reduced the amount of relief that's available. It was introduced 12 years ago at 
with a lifetime individual cap of 1 million. That was progressively increased to 10 million, and now that's brought back from today, the 11th of March, it's brought back to 1 million. And what will be the impact of that? It will leave a lot of small businesses uh, un unaffected. What it will affect are larger, more su in a sense, it will affect both larger, more successful businesses, who, where simply the gain that the business owner has made is, is larger. It may also affect things like the, the structures that have been used to bring forward development land uh, and, 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 and other aspects like that. But it's worth remembering that the basic rate of capital gains tax now for almost all property and almost all business is 20%. It's not too many years ago, it was 28%, it was 30%, it was 40%. 20% is fairly close to the level at which people will settle down and do, and do the deals. Uh, we wait to see what effect this has. Continuing on capital taxation, there was a lot of speculation pre-budget again about um, the government potentially tinkering with inheritance tax, um, but there was no announcements on that. No. There appear to be no announcements whatsoever in the paperwork. Uh, there has been a lot of chatter uh, based partly on one or two um, policy group reports as to whether agricultural property relief or more particularly perhaps business property relief were at some measure risk or qualification. That always seemed very unlikely and nothing has happened at this point in this budget. And with the other agricultural reliefs then, a lot of focus and a lot of attention has certainly been on social media around uh, red diesel. What's been the outcome of that? The outcome of that is, should best be seen as part of the climate change and environmental discussion. The government is looking at the lower rates of duty on red diesel, as for example in the construction sector and other areas of off-road transport, as being ones that encourage the inefficient, the environmentally contentious use of fuel, producing pollutants and so on, and said we should we should move those sectors to more environmentally friendly forms of, of power. They've been given a couple of years forward notice and told that it will then move to the ordinary taxation of diesel. The sectors exempted from that include agriculture and fisheries as well as domestic heating and, and the railways. And that is something where again on the background conversations. This is part of the recognition that agriculture has got a lot of change to face. Post-Brexit policy, changes in support, changes prospectively in trade arrangements. It's got a lot to handle and this sort of tax burden would not help that. It certainly welcomes stability for the industry which is going to change, uh, face a lot of change over the, over the years to come. And what other reliefs are changing? The helpful one and it's probably part of a slow journey of being helpful, is an improvement in the rate of relief available for income tax and corporation tax where a building is being constructed for commercial or agricultural purposes. Some years ago, there used to be industrial and agricultural buildings allowances. Those were scrapped. We went some years with no tax relief whatsoever on anybody who put up a new building or indeed a silage clamp or, or, a, or a slurry store or other, other structures like that. And in, a, in, in an economy where we're looking to encourage construction in, in these areas, that always seemed very strange. A year ago, the Structures and Buildings Allowance, a fairly complicated allowance, was introduced at a rate of 2%. So that was writing off a new building, whatever it was, 
over 50 years. As was expected, this budget has increased that allowance from 2% to 3%. That's a helpful step. It means that we're looking at buildings being written off over 33 years. Still an interesting question as to how many buildings that old are still really useful, particularly in farming with its exposure to physical stress and the elements. But nonetheless, that is, that is helpful. It may be seen as more fair. It may not yet be a proper incentive for people to invest in the kind of buildings that they're looking at. And um, the annual investment allowance, I know that's mentioned uh, in, in the announcement as well, and it was, um, there was a temporary increase um, to 1 million for 2019 and 2020. That is going to return to a level of 200,000 as of 2021. So the message there, if you're a business with a significant investment to make, there might be advantages to do that this year. I think that is a very important message. Uh, chancellors have used the annual investment allowance, the opportunity to write off the entire cost up to up up to a, a figure uh, in a year uh, against tax. They've used that to try and stimulate investment. And two years ago, it was increased for 2019 and 2020 to one million from 200,000, as you've said. And looking through the budget papers, I was struggling to see anything said, and it's buried away in a footnote that it lapses back to the 200,000. So if a business has a major investment program, as in innovation or new technology, then if it's a sensible investment program, the tax should never, the tax tail should never wag the dog. But if it's a sensible investment program, that may be an important consideration in trying to have that work done this year. And we've now been given slightly less than ten months' notice of that falling back to two hundred thousand. But looking at the budget in its totality, what's your take on, on the government's first post-Brexit budget? I think it's shown a willingness to spend. It has possibly missed the occasion of its first budget with a five-year term to make larger changes that would take time to come right. It has perhaps been deflected from that by the short-term issues, big issues of the coronavirus, and just keeping the economy moving smoothly through the next few months. It has also got to try and put the economy on the best footing for where we will be in the coming years as we move out of the European Union's orbit and as we move more openly into more open world trade uh, as a result of that. Um, it's the investment, the commitment to infrastructure in this, I think, is, is very important as part of that process. Other larger changes perhaps will come in the autumn or next year but a government only ever has a finite life and the op missing the occasion of its first budget could become something that would be regretted. But those are the choices that you have in politics. Well, Jeremy, it's been fascinating once again and thank you for your insights and your analysis. Uh, they can really help us understand the issues and consequences around some of these changes. Changes both short-term and long-term that will have an impact on the professional work of CAV members and indeed on their clients' businesses as well. And that's all from the CAV podcast for today. Thank you for listening. And if you want to catch up on previous episodes, we've got four others you can listen to covering topics including how to prepare a farming business for change, the new agriculture bill, the electronic communications code and the proposed reform to residential tenancies in England. You can find them all on Apple, Spotify and Google Podcasts as well as on our website caav.org.uk. 
Also, please feel free to share this podcast with colleagues or friends who might be interested. So until the next time, on behalf of Jeremy Moody and myself, Alec Jones, thank you for your support and bye for now.